Well, let's open up in prayer, and then we'll open God's Word. Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering together this morning as your people. Thank you for the privilege of being able to sing such wonderful words in faith and to know that they are true, that you are God alone. May you take those words and make them have roots that sink deep into our hearts by faith, words that we live by. May that truly be our joy when we wake in the morning, when we go to bed at night and through our day, that you would be our meditation and our joy, that Christ, you would be our companion in the thoughts of our hearts, that we would walk obediently with you by the Spirit, and that we would glorify you with our lives. We ask you now this morning that your word would do its work in our minds and in our hearts, renewing us and revealing to us your glory and revealing to us our own sin. And may you do your work in us, Spirit, conforming us to the image of the one that we love. We thank you again for gathering us, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter... 23, Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 23, 1 through 12. We're coming this morning back into the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be, do so for the next couple of weeks. Uh, just to give you an idea of what to expect, then I will be gone for a couple of weeks in Kentucky for school, and Parker will be back in Titus for three or four weeks or so. We'll see how long that takes. And then after that, we'll again, probably around uh, the end of December, come back to this chapter 23 and pick up where we left off in verse 13, assuming we get to verse 12 next week. Now this morning then, we're going to begin our look at this most monumental chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, and really in all of the Gospels, and in all of the New Testament, and certainly in the ministry and in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this chapter, it stands out to us because of the clarity and the severity at which Jesus confronts the heart sin of the leadership of the nation of Israel, namely their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness. Indeed, hypocrisy and self-righteousness are two of the most deadly sins known to man. Those words should cause us to fear The idea that hypocrisy might ever lodge within our hearts should cause us to tremble. And yet this was the sin that marked the leadership of Israel, and it is a sin that flourishes most easily within a religious context, within religion. And the reason that's so is because it can so easily hide and blend in and meld and mix with so much that is on the outside Right. It is these sins then that are the mark of all false teachers and false believers for that matter, although the leaders of Israel are the focus of Jesus' attention in Matthew 23. They were essentially, as Jesus has mentioned in other places, wolves in sheep's clothing. They were false teachers. They were not the real deal. And yet they were the ones who were leading, as it were, Israel. Now in this next section then, Jesus removes the mask of hypocrisy and exposes the heart of the self-righteous and the hypocrite in language and clarity again unparalleled in the rest of the New Testament. And he does so because it is so serious. Indeed, the theme of this next section is, and it's written in your bulletin, that hypocrisy is deception that leads unto destruction, while humility is the path of grace. Now again, this morning we're going to introduce this section, verses 1 through 12, getting only to verse 4. But read with me, if you will, to begin, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll look at it more closely. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you... Do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them 
with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Go back up to verse 1 of Matthew 23. As Matthew now introduces us into a new section in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He uses a connection there at the beginning, then, which simply marks here now that new section that he is beginning. And it is a new direction in his presentation of Jesus, and it is an advancement of the progression of the hostility and the conflict that is only escalating between Jesus and the leadership of Israel. Now, Matthew has been noting this escalation ever since Jesus entered into Jerusalem back in chapter 21. He came in upon the praises of the people of Israel, many of the Jews who ran out to meet him and proclaim him as Messiah, essentially, that irked these leaders who were constantly jealous over the popularity of Jesus. They essentially hated him and wanted him dead. And so we see this conflict in Verse 15 of chapter 21, that they heard these Pharisees, chief priests and scribes, all the wonderful things he'd done, the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, and they became indignant. They were incensed. They were miffed. They were ticked off. They were angry. Later, in verses 23 through 27, they confront Jesus over the issue of his authority. They later, in verse 12 are going to, or it's back up in verse 12, after they had already seen him overturn all of the tables and those who were perverting the worship of God in the court of the Gentiles. They were incensed over his healing. In verse 14, they saw what he was doing. They were incensed over his teaching. In verse 23. And all of these things, again, were just mounting up in them this fervent, fervent hatred of Jesus and this Jealousy and this indignation at his person and the glory that was being accorded to him from the lips of the people. So Jesus, after receiving from them their constant attacks, turns the tables on them and he gives the parable of the two sons and he reminds them that you who are supposedly the religious elite of the nation are in fact going to be the ones excluded from the kingdom while those whom you despise will enter into the kingdom, even the prostitutes and the sinners. He then gives them a parable of the landowner at the end of which he again tells them the kingdom is going to be taken away from you and it's going to be given to others who are, in essence, more worthy than you. And then he increases this and he gives them another parable in the parable of the marriage feast. And he tells them that you who are the ones who are rejecting the grace of God extending to you, you who are despising the offer of God in the gospel will again be rejected. And in fact, this time, not only will the kingdom be taken away from you, but you will be cast into hell. They will be bound hand and foot and thrown into the outer darkness And in that place there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. And all because they refused to humble themselves before Christ. They refused to make themselves low before their own God and Messiah. Then incensed by these indictments, they again come at him with another round. And this is where we left off last time. And they try to discredit him before the people. And so they come with their subtle sophistry, which is simply they're coming with this subtle reasoning, trying to deceive and trying to discredit him. They want to trick him in his words and take away his reputation before the people. 
And of course that backfires and instead Jesus simply exposes their ignorance. He exposes the heart of all of their error and he finally indicts them and said, you in fact have missed the very heart of the law of God. And he does that through the question that was asked to him by a lawyer in verse 35, which is the great commandment. It is that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And the second is the great and foremost commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And they missed everything. They missed everything. And then he brings it all home and causes them to consider even the very nature of God the very nature of God, and to consider then Himself who is standing before them, who is claimed to be God and their Messiah. So He is confronting them at every point and continually exposing them, exposing their er uh, ignorance, exposing their deceptions, and exposing their ignorance of their very own God and their Messiah. And it's from that context that Matthew then brings us into chapter 23. And as he enters in again into this next phase of conflict with these leaders in the most direct and striking language in all of Scripture. And again, there is no sin that Jesus attacks so vehemently and so strongly as he does the sin of hypocrisy. And that is because it is so deadly. It is such a danger to those who are religious. And he knows the shortness of his days. He knows that he's going to the cross. He knows that he's going to be crucified. And so he wants to give a warning to his people. He wants to give a warning to his church because these are not simply the sins that will infiltrate the nation of Israel, but they are always the sin that confront the church and the leaders of the church and the false teachers that will try to deceive her. Now this next section that begins here is actually going to run all the way to the end of chapter 25. All the way to the end of chapter 25. And that section then will end with these most ominous words. Chapter 25, 46 says this, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And right after that, then Matthew accounts for us the passion of Jesus Christ in which the leaders begin their plan to put him to death. And in so doing, they climactically demonstrate the darkness that is ruling their hearts. And that is then the very climax of the display of their hypocrisy that Jesus is here going to confront in chapter 23. And so these are serious sins. And these are serious issues that lay before the church and that lay before his disciples, and that lay before you and me. Now again, then, Jesus is addressing the crowds and his disciples, and his disciples. But he's doing this within, clearly, the leader, the hearing of the leaders. Again, in chapter verse 13, he's going to address them directly. He's going to confront them head on. And so they are clearly among these crowds. Luke says that all of the people, in fact, were listening. And they were among all of those people listening. So Jesus is directing his address to the crowds, to the disciples, but in the hearing of all. In other words, this is a very intense scene. And Jesus is not giving them a silent rebuke and he is intentionally not giving them a silent rebuke. This is not done in a closed room, nor is it done out of a fear of their response to him. It is an open rebuke of the very leaders of the nation. He wants everybody to hear what's going on. And remember that these are the ones who are essentially the architects of the religion of Judaism in the first century. And really the Pharisees even going into the second century and beyond. But here particularly, these Pharisees and the scribes, they are the ones who were the great, wielded the greatest influence on the religious thinking of the people. And so it is absolutely important that Jesus exposes their error publicly. He's said done so privately plenty of times and with uh, the crowds still present when he spoke to the, for example, the disciples in Luke 12 and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. But now again, he's taking that to a completely different level. And this is not the first time that Jesus has confronted this sin in these leaders. You'll remember the first back in chapters 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And there in that sermon, he was unveiling to them the true nature of righteousness, the true nature of life in the kingdom, and essentially showing that they had everything wrong. They had everything wrong, and so he explains to them what righteousness truly looks like. And then he gives them a warning in chapter 5, verse 20, talking to the crowds and his disciples. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is very, very serious. From the earliest days that they begin to wield their influence, And from the earliest days that Jesus began to confront this influence that they were wielding, he was exposing that it was a false system of righteousness that they labored under. It's a false system of righteousness that they taught and that they demonstrated in their lives. And essentially what they had done is they had covered over the word of God They had covered over the conviction that was to come to God's people and the comfort and the direction and the rest that was to be offered to God's people and the hope in the Messiah that was to come in and they come and they covered over all of that and they hid from the people the word of God essentially and they created a system that made it that they could please God on their own. It was external It focused on externals and it fostered a climate of religious hypocrisy and it found its greatest example in its leaders. And now Jesus is exposing that. And yet in light of that, look what he says. He gives the most most surprising warning. The most surprising warning. Now, he has just confronted them and been confronting them throughout their ministry for the error of their teaching. And yet here he comes in verse Three or verse at the end of verse two, the middle, he says, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses, therefore all that they tell you do and observe. And that is a surprising statement. That's a shocking statement, actually. What is he talking about? What does he mean, all they tell you or whatever they tell you, do and observe? Didn't he just finish exposing them for their ignorance of God's law, for their ignorance and rebellion to God's? As a matter of fact, back in verse chapter 15, you'll remember, didn't Jesus accuse them of invalidating the word of God for the sake of their tradition, the tradition of the elders? In other words, he's condemned them for teaching contrary to the word of God. And they repeatedly showed this ignorance throughout the ministry. They condemned Jesus for their, breaking their Sabbath laws in chapter 12. And again, in chapter 16, Jesus warned his disciples to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So what does he mean by this? What does he mean by this? Well, in order to gain clarity, it's necessary to look at the following statement, or the first statement. He says, they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. And that's the key phrase. They have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, what is this chair of Moses? What does he mean by that? He simply means this. They have taken the position of authority and leadership in the nation of Israel. They have set themselves up as the teachers of the people of God. And as God raised up Moses to lead his people and through him delivered the law, Moses was understood as God's established teacher and judge of the people. And here they have come and they have set themselves in the line of this great leader of God's people. So the idea of sitting in his chair is to say that they sit in the line of those whom God has placed over his people to teach them and to judge in matters of the law, to promote justice and to promote righteousness. Now there was, in fact, in the synagogues, later discoveries in the synagogues, a stone seat that, in which the leader sat in and then taught the people. But it's not likely he's referring to that here because it's not likely that those were yet in the synagogues. But in either case, the meaning is the same, that they are the ones who had assumed upon themselves the position of leadership and teachers of God's people. And the fact is that the Pharisees and the scribes were the experts in the law. 
And they were looked to the people as the interpreters of the law for Israel. And so Jesus is not condemning their authority He's to do that. He's being very careful to distinguish that. He is rather commending them in that role. And it is from that role that He says, Therefore, all they tell and do, observe, you are to obey them inasmuch as they are recognized as the teachers of God's law. Now some believe here then that Jesus is using abiding irony or sarcasm. And that's possible in light of verse 4 where he is going to accuse them of tying up heavy burdens and laying them on men's shoulders. But the fact is he's making a straight comparison here between the righteousness of their, the rightness of their words and the wrongness of their works. And so it seems best to understand it that Jesus is commending their authority here as teachers of Israel. He's not discounting that. And it's important for us to remember that the people did not walk around with copies of the scroll underneath their arms. They didn't have that. If they wanted to hear the law, they had to go to the synagogue and they had to hear it taught by the leaders there. The only, that was the only representation of the law of God they had. And so Jesus is commending them in that role. He's basically saying, look, inasmuch as they are in the line of Moses and inasmuch as they are the teachers of Israel, in that degree or to that degree, then you are to obey them. And why does Jesus say this, though? Why does he say this? I mean, what is the point of bringing that out in the, in, the, in the light of the fact that he's going to give them such harsh condemnation? Well, I think it's because of this. I think because of the harshness of his condemnations that are coming, he wants to be careful to distinguish between what is true and right about their authority and what is in error. So people don't dismiss the whole of the office and dismiss the whole of their teaching inasmuch as it is a faithful representation of God's word. In other words, he wants the people to exercise discernment and he doesn't want them to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And he wants to emphasize, I think here, that the authority of God's word stands on its own apart from the life and the error of those who may teach it. That said, the integrity of a ministry rises no higher than its teachers. And here it is then right for him to point out their sin. Just as Paul will give instructions in 1 Timothy 5 that when an elder sins and it is a known sin that it deserves condemnation, it is to be made known to all of the people so that they would fear. And that is in part what Jesus is doing here as the Lord of his people. So he commends them in their role as the teachers of Israel, but then he condemns them in their lack of integrity and their hypocrisy. Look what he says. Therefore, all they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They say things and they do not do them. In other words, he's saying there is a gap between what they say and between what they do. They say things, but they do not do them. So listen to them, and as much as they teach Scripture, but when you look at their lives, reject what it is that they bear fruit of. Namely, lives that do not know their God. They had essentially become a class of professional religious hypocrites. And again, this is extremely dangerous sin. One has said this, it so easily becomes a habit of life in such a way to sustain or acquire a reputation for piety without giving heed to what we are deep down. And that is in fact what had happened to these leaders and happens to so many. They had built up habits of hypocrisy, a satisfaction with the opinion of others, but without fostering and pursuing a sincere fellowship with their God in their heart. And that is an extremely easy sin to fall into. They knew the Word of God. They were experts in the Word of God, but it never penetrated into their heart. And so they reflected, they failed to reflect the glory of God. And again, this is not simply a sin relegated to these leaders of Israel. Paul is going to give the same warning. We're going to come to it probably in a few weeks. Titus 1.16 They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. 
And let's make a note here that genuine faith is never proved by what you say or what you know, but always by the reality of a transformed life. At the very essence of repentance and spiritual life is obedience to Christ and the desire to follow Him. And indeed, this is a very serious, serious situation. We all know, all of us know, the difficulty in our evangelism of overcoming the damage that has been done by those who profess to know Christ, but by their lives they deny Him. Paul is going to address this. Just listen as I read it in Romans chapter 2. He says that if you bear the name Jew, you rely upon the law of God, boast in God, know His will, approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? And you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you not dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so it was with these leaders. They professed to know God. They professed to assume the place of teacher, but by their lives they denied Him and they did great damage to the glory of God and to the people of God. And so Jesus is going to address that. However, in their case, what's interesting is it's not that they were living dissolute lives. It's something much more subtle than that. What is it? What is it exactly that are their deeds that Jesus is condemning here? Well, He defines it in the next verse. Look at verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Now there's really two levels here that Jesus is addressing of their error. Two levels that he's addressing. The first is this. He's addressing their error of going beyond Scripture's command in establishing what is righteous. He says they tie up heavy loads and they place them on men's shoulders. In other words, they add so many extra rules to follow and hoops to jump through in order to please God and to walk righteously that instead of it being a joy, instead of God's word being a blessing, it has been made to God's people a burden and a weight, something heavy to bear, something that bothers the consciences of men. Now, We noted earlier that the rabbis divided the law into 613 commandments. uh, 248 were positive, 365 negative. And in addition to that, which were already extensive commands in the law, they added to these, as was mentioned, the tradition of the elders in chapter 15 too. And they covered up with rituals. They covered over the the law of God with all of their additional rituals that really related primarily to purity, how to remain pure. They had things such as washing the hands and how the food was to be treated and what constituted work on the Sabbath and many, many more things. And it was confusing and it was burdensome to the people. And on top of this, not even all of the teachers were agreed on what these requirements should be. Now what makes this so significant is this, is the subtleness of it. It seems simple enough, the error on the surface, but it really is very quite subtle, very quite subtle. And understanding the history of their tradition helps us here. These traditions, this oral law, really can be traced back to the time of Jews when they went back into the land of Israel after their deportation. If you'll remember, God judged the tribes in Uh, in the northern tribes of Assyria in 722 B.C., and then the southern tribes of Judah in 586 B.C. He sent them off, both these nations, into captivity, and then he brought them back into the land, and when they were brought back into the land, they were very humbled by the severity of God's judgment, and they knew that their judgment was because of their unfaithfulness to the word of God. And so there was a revival, in a sense, of commitment to the Word of God when they came back into the land. And the knowledge of Scripture became, took on a new place of importance in their history that it had not had before. As a matter of fact, the prototypical example of this is the priest Ezra. Ezra 7.10 says this, He set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. 
And that was then to be the foundation of their life in the land. And they were at the beginning committed to this. They were in the beginning committed to this. And in fact, the earliest scribes dedicated to the preservation of Scripture can be traced back to this line, to the ministry of Ezra. However, they fell into the same sins of idolatry again and being influenced by their pagan culture particularly the Greek culture that had begun to spread. And by the 2nd century B.C., they were again under the ravages of this pagan culture and in danger uh, as for wholesaling, turning again back to pagan ways. And it was at this time that there was the Maccabean Revolt, which was led by a group known as the Hasidim, which is really the, where the descendants or the, uh, the Pharisees uh, descended from. And they were dedicated to the purity of the word of God. And they're anticipated actually in Daniel chapter 11. And these Hasidim, after delivering the people from falling again wholesale into the paganism of the Greek culture, committed themselves to protecting the word of God. And what they did is they set a hedge of protection around it, a fence around the law of God. And this is the oral tradition. And they did that so as to protect the commandment of God from being broken by his people. In other words, they did it for good and noble and right and religious reasons. The problem is, is that these began to take an authority of their own. And this is the arena that Jesus is addressing here and saying you've gone beyond the word of God and you've tied up these heavy burdens and you've placed them on men's shoulders and you've taken making serving God rather than being a joy is you've made it something heavy. And so what I want you to notice here is the subtlety of it. The motivation seems so righteous to protect the word of God. And that's what makes self-righteousness and hypocrisy so blinding. Other than understanding God's law as a gracious guidance to a heart that's humbled by sin and rest in His grace, they twisted it, they covered it over, and through their additions, they covered over the intent of God's word. And it fostered a mentality where acceptance became attached to obedience rather than to grace and to mercy. And again, this is something that faced the church even in its earliest years. You can look briefly if you want. I'm going to mention it quickly. Acts 15. In Acts 15, the ministry of Peter has already been established. The ministry of Paul has already begun and began to spread. And there were conflicts that began to arise among the congregations. And Paul is constantly addressing them in his epistles. And in verse 5 of chapter, Acts chapter 15, uh, he identifies this group. He says, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And these were in fact the Judaizers that Paul was constantly confronting uh, in his epistles to the churches. And so they came together to discuss these issues. And as they're discussing it, Peter stands up in verse 10 and he says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, you're doing the same sin. You're binding the consciences of men with these rules and these stipulations and you're making it heavy and you're keeping them from the grace of God. And this is precisely what Jesus is confronting there and it's precisely what Peter and Paul and the others are confronting there in Acts 15. It is a constant threat to the church. A true experience of grace, beloved, we know, produce works, but works can never merit grace. And that's what they were fighting to protect. Paul said in Romans 4.4, 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. And he wants to protect the grace of God. And what they're doing here is operating out of a legal view of spirituality rather than love for God. And notice what he says next, if you're not there yet. Back in Matthew 23, he says, you tie up these heavy burdens, you lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves, he said, are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. And now he really gets to the heart of it, of their deeds. They were not willing to help those whom they taught to bear up under the load they put on them. And this is a striking statement. 
And his basic point here is this, that although these leaders were experts in the law, were quick to pile up obligations on others, they had no desire to come alongside those whom they taught and to help them and alleviate their burdens. In other words, they had a ministry of law without grace. And that's what Jesus is condemning them for. He's condemning them for carrying on a ministry of law, of laying burdens on God's people, and yet it was without mercy and it was without grace. Now some of you have been in churches like this. I know, I've heard the stories. Some of you have grown up in that kind of religious environment. I went to a school like this in 6th to 8th grade. Short hair, girls wore culottes. Y'all know what culottes are. I do because of that experience. It was all of these external rules, what you do and what you don't do, but there was no grace or very little grace if it was there at all. And the matter of fact is that most of the kids who grew up in that environment are not walking with the Lord today. They live dissolute lives, disobedient lives. They did not come to love and to know Christ. Why? Because it's a religion that deals only with externals. It's very good at creating guilt, very good at laying burdens on people, very good at creating rebellion in the hearts of people and parents. We can do this with our children too. When we address so much externals with a hardness and we neglect the heart, it was ruling without grace and that's what Jesus is addressing here. And it is exceedingly, exceedingly deceitful let me give you just one verse here in Colossians I'm going to go rather quickly because I want to get to the end here he says this in Colossians so it's not now from he's addressing the same error in principle and essentially is this is that there are those who had come in to disturb the church and to cause them to drift away from the grace that they had in Christ and pull them back into a system of externals. And he tells them, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So these were Jewish teachers, maybe even some of those false teachers that were from the same realm of those that were addressed in Acts 15. And he says they're coming in and he says, let no one act as an authority in those areas. These are things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of angels, taking his stands on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. But he says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world do you submit to your decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all of things which refer to those things destined to perish in accordance with the commandment and the teaching of men. These are matters, now listen to this, which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. In other words, they had a religion that was external, but it was devoid of the inner grace of God. And so they piled on. That's the only kind of religion that they knew. And so they piled on these externals, and they caused a burden, and they were unwilling to help, and they could give no remedy of grace to the people to help them bear this burden. And Jesus says, that's what I'm condemning them for. They didn't care. They didn't help. They were deceived and caught others up in their own dead system. And that was the problem. That was the problem. The fact is, however, he's not talking here about them telling people to do things and then them not doing it. In fact, they did. Their lives were dedicated to the minutiae of the law. Certainly they didn't fulfill them all, and certainly they didn't follow through with everything they taught the people, but that's not what Jesus is condemning them for here. He's condemning them for the harshness of their ministry that they said things to people and tied them up and they did not help them to bear it. They used God's word as a rod and as a sword and not as a balm and a comfort to help the people. That is the issue. Now why are these false teachers like this? Well, I'm going to just mention this quickly. There's two reasons and I want to get to the end and lead us into the table, the Lord's table. Why are they like this? Why are they like this? Well, first of all, it is because they had no love for God. 
Jesus has already identified that as the basic issue. We mentioned it earlier. That's the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is the manifestation of love to God. And yet they had neither of those. They loved authority. They loved respect. They loved the honor of the people. They loved knowledge. They loved their religion, but they did not love God or their neighbor. They were not true shepherds of the sheep. They were not true shepherds of the sheep. And this is one of the most searing indictments against the leaders that Jesus gave. In John 5, 42, he says this, You do not have the love of God within yourselves. You don't have it. You don't know it. You miss it, and so for that reason you miss your Messiah, and you're harsh, and you're uncaring, and you're self-interested, and you don't care about God's sheep. That's exactly the opposite of Christ. There's no love of God, no real sense of God's love even for them that was extended to them, and so therefore they did not extend God's love, and God's kindness, and God's grace to others. They did not extend true teaching. They missed the very essence of the law that they studied and taught all the time. And yet they missed it because Paul says a veil lies over their own heart. A second reason is this. Jesus identifies in John 5 again. How can you believe, he says, when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? What is the problem The problem is this, they were too full of love and admiration and appreciation for themselves to have any room left for a self-denying love to God and others. They had perverted the law as a means of self-advancing self and not the glory of God, of ruling others and not serving them. They wanted to receive from the sheep, not to feed the sheep and to serve the sheep. They are the ones that Jesus identified in John chapter 10 when he said this in verse 10, speaking of these kind of leaders, he says, The thief comes in only to steal, steal and kill and destroy. That's why they're there. They want to use you. They want to abuse you. They want to use you for their own ends. And yet there's even another reason that Jesus identified earlier in chapter 9, 13 of Matthew. He says this, Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. The reason they were harsh is because they had no sense of their own need of grace. They had no sense of their own need of God's compassion, and so therefore they didn't extend it to others. In their mind, they met the requirements of the law. They were pleasing God with their own lives, and so they didn't need to be bothered with those who weren't, those who weren't meeting their own standards. And so they were able then to stand in a place in their own mind of judgment and condemnation of others and treat them cruelly and heartily. And this is what characterizes religious hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Again, a love of the externals of religion without a genuine love for God or others. And a sense of having satisfied God's requirement to please Him so that there's no humble sense of of need for God's grace and no sense of extending it to others. They tie up heavy burdens, they place them on the shoulders of men, but they're unwilling to lift them with a finger. They have a ministry that is hard and without compassion. Now let's end here by going back over to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Flip over there with me and I'm going to remind you of a passage here. This is exactly the opposite of Christ. Exactly the opposite of Christ. Everything that he condemns them for here and everything that Christ condemns all who are self-righteous and hypocrites, he displays just the opposite in his life. He displays just the opposite. Look what he says. This is the call of Jesus. Instead, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. All of those who are feeling the burden of the law. All of those who are feeling the weightiness of their inability to please God by what you're doing. All who are weary like that, come to Him and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Now, why is Jesus' yoke easy? Is it that Jesus requires nothing, that these leaders required everything and Jesus requires nothing? Is that what it is? No, his yoke, the yoke of Jesus includes obedience. It includes self-denial. It includes self-sacrificing love. It includes diligence in pursuing holiness. So then what is the difference then between the yoke of Jesus and the yoke that was weighing down the people that was coming from these false leaders? What is the difference? Do you know the difference? The difference is this. The difference is grace. The difference is grace. You see... Jesus came because he understands our inability to obey the law. Because of original sin, the law could never be the means of gaining acceptance with God. Paul said in Galatians 3.10, Curses every man who does not keep all the things that are written in the law. It is impossible, and therefore if you don't keep them, it brings a curse. It was never a means. Jesus isn't giving a new Way to try to attain righteousness, just the opposite. Notice what he says. Come unto me. In other words, he's saying, come unto me. And we hide ourselves in his grace who obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf and for us. We come and we hide ourselves in him who suffered the curse of the law for us and on our behalf. Christ doesn't call us to come to some burdensome list to gain his favor, but he comes and calls us to trust in Him who gained God's favor for us and on our behalf. There's a second reason that His commandments are not burdensome, and it's this. Because not only did Christ suffer and obey on our behalf, but He also has given us the Spirit of God, which enables us to walk in obedience to the gospel, to walk in obedience to God. They did it in the flesh, And if you're trying to do it in the flesh, you're going to be constantly frustrated. You're going to be constantly burdened and weighed down. The gospel is going to be to you like it was to Martin Luther when he only saw in it that he needed to attain his own righteousness and it came to driving to where he actually started to hate God. Here he had thoughts of hatred towards God. And yet that's just the opposite of what Christ offers in the gospel. He offers himself and he says he also then offers us by the Spirit the grace to walk in faithfulness to the Word of God. They did it in the flesh. And all of those who are walking in that line do it in the flesh. No spiritual resources. But of the Spirit, he says this in Romans 5.5. Listen, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It was poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And what is this heart of love that's poured out into the hearts of God's people by the Spirit? He defines it. Let me read it for you. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the testimony of the love of God that the Spirit of God bears within our heart and he unites us to Christ and enables us then to walk in a manner that is pleasing to him and it's not burdensome. The obedience of the gospel is a joy to God's people. Not a burden. Listen to what 1 John says. Whoever believes that Jesus is Christ is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know... See, they did not love the child that was of God, their own people. But in fact, that is what the Spirit of God produces. And he says this, 1 John 5, 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. How do you know if you're a believer when the commandments of God are your joy and they're not burdensome? How do you know when someone is a false teacher when they focus on Christ or a true teacher when they focus on Christ and they offer with the commands of God also the balm of grace and the mercy of God in Christ? And if we know Him, then the commandments of God are not burdensome. They are our delight and our joy. This is why the yoke of Christ is not burdensome. It is a rest because He bore the curse of the law for us. He fulfilled it in our place, and then he gave the Spirit of God 
who gives us a new heart, makes us new creatures, unites us to Christ, breaks the power of canceled sin, removes the stony heart that is not able to subject itself to the Word of God, and gives us a bent to obey in response to God's glory, His love, and His grace in Christ. He's not left us as orphans, but He's come to us in the Spirit of God, and He enables us to walk with Him in righteousness and strengthened by His forgiving grace. This is something totally foreign, totally foreign to these teachers and to any teacher today who does not understand the grace of God and lays these burdens on the people of God which none have ever been able to bear. And it is that grace of God that we celebrate this morning. When we celebrate this table, we are rejoicing in the fact that God has released us from our sin through His broken body And it's a body that was broken, understand this, after He fulfilled the law of God for us. He stood in our place in every way so that when we take of this table, we're reminded that we are covered by Christ. We who have come to Him are covered by His life. We are counted righteous before God in Christ, in Christ, by virtue of our union with Him and our trust in Him. So let me pray as we prepare our hearts for the table. And then we will remember his death and resurrection and return together. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you did plan before the foundation of the world to send your son so that we who are sinners might be redeemed. So that we who have rebelled against your law might know your grace instead of your wrath and your judgment. And Christ, we thank you that you did come in love for the Father and in love for those given to you by the Father, to purchase with your own blood the church of God, to purchase a people who would sing the praises of the glory of your grace throughout all eternity and know only the riches of the lavishness of your kindness forever. And that is what we celebrate this morning, that you were broken and bruised and killed for us that we might know grace. So prepare our hearts and help us to come with a worthy worthy life and a worthy heart. And if there's any here who are holding on or harboring sin, will you convict them of that this morning, that they would come in a worthy manner? And if there are any here who do not yet know this loving trust in Christ and this obedient life that wants to honor you, then convict them this morning. Convict them this morning and bring them to a true experience of your grace in Christ through repentance and faith, we pray. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So Ruth will pray and then when she's finished play, we'll uh, take the elements together.